Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. On the subject of remote viewing, we've been joined by wonderful men and women such as Ingo Swan, Hal Putoff, Joe McMoneagle, Skip Atwater, and others who are instrumental in the successful remote viewing program. Joining us tonight, as he has in the past, to talk about life and discovery is one of those collaborators, physicist Dr. Russell Targ. His recent Hampton Roads 2008 release, Do You See What I See? Memoirs of a Blind Biker is a truly wonderful telling of a beautiful life told in a way that brings you into the feeling of it all and not just the story of life events. Russell, thank you so much for being with us again. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you found my book entertaining. I I did, and that's really true. I felt that I could, you know, and I read it over a period of evenings, actually. I tend to read books all at once because when one has to read so many, that's what one does. But instead with yours, I chose to just read it in increments, and the beauty of it is that wherever you drop in, I really feel you get a feeling for the whole. Well, I'm fortunate that I had a lot of magic in my life. I started out uh, doing magic in New York as a stage magician, and it was through standing on the stage and doing magic, fooling people, which is what every kid likes to do, uh, I got my first contact with psychic functioning, where I would suddenly get pictures pertaining to what people in the audience were thinking, so I could supplement my trickery with actual psychic ability. I began to get in contact with real parapsychologists like J.B. Ryan and find out what the professionals were doing. And as I became a graduate student and a scientist, I became much more interested in understanding the psychic ability that's available to us uh, rather than doing magic tricks. One of the things that you speak to throughout the book is, is the urgency I guess every soul has or the mind should have to question reality. When you say to question reality, to ask ourselves, is what we're looking at really true? Is what we're hearing the essence of something? What's some ways to, to share with the listener that method of how to actually question what we say? Well, it's really a Buddhist perspective to move from conditioned awareness, where you're living in an environment where 
your reality is shaped by television and newspapers and spending a lot of time supporting the story of who you think you are. So it's ego-based living, and the invitation is to move to naked awareness or timeless awareness where you reside in the flow of loving awareness and flexibility and generosity. It's a moving from... You know, it's the idea that we all live in a cult called society where what you believe is extremely colored by what you hear on the radio and television and move from that society, from that way of seeing things to a more spacious view where you see things as they really are. And in psychic abilities, you get a chance to move from your conditioning, which is seeing things uh, as you're told to see them, to living in a non-local world where you're able to expand your awareness and describe and experience what's happening in the distance and what's happening in the future. And this is not a metaphysical program. This has been understood for thousands of years. As in the 800s, a great Buddhist teacher, Padmasambhava, wrote a book that's in many ways a lot like the one I just wrote. He calls it self-liberation through seeing with naked awareness. And the invitation is to move from <clears throat> the state where your uh, experience of the world is governed by your conditioning and the newspapers in which you're taught, to move from that to the much more generous way of experiencing the universe, which is one of spaciousness, where you can see beyond what's right in front of you, see into the distance, see into the future, and experience things as they really are. One, one of my late great teachers, uh, Terry Edward Ross, used to say, you know, seeing everywhere and every when. And as Ingo and you have really demonstrated to the world, as have others who have been part of this remarkable sort of... Um, I guess one would say a modern application of very ancient talents that all beings have the aptitude for. When you retired from Lockheed Martin Missile and Space, um, you were a senior staff scientist. You were involved in developing the airborne laser systems for the detection of wind shear and, and other things. I'm curious how your work with magic as a child, your exposure to so much rich culture, but more so the, um, I guess what one would call a limitation or a handicap within your visual frame of reference. Talk to our audience a little bit about that, because my hunch is, is it gave you other um, aptitudes that perhaps many of us don't use because we don't have to. Well, my vision is very poor. So as a child, I could not <clears throat> see blackboards, for example. I had a promenade back and forth in front of the blackboard to copy down exam questions before I could even start the examination. So um, elementary school and high school is a big problem for me because they could never see blackboards. So it's really natural that a handicapped person would develop an interest in optics. Mm -hmm. so it was in my last year of high school, I fi figured out really from the physics class that I had that I could have uh, glasses of sufficient optical power so that I could read ordinary textbooks. Optometrists even today like to save adequate correction for handicapped people, and will save it for later in your life. And a lot of people are functionally blind who could be corrected, but you have to know something in order to sensibly demand the correction 
that you need. I was the, I was actually at the National Institutes of Health a few years ago because of my they wanted to examine the genetic basis of my bad vision. And the very nice geneticist that I was working with had actually published a paper talking about the fact that people with um, genetic albinism, which is what I have, can't be corrected. Isn't it too bad that these people are never able to read? And I said, here I am. Mm -hmm. I held up my hand. I'm reading as fast as you are. Of course, they have to have my nose in the book. But if you give me enough optical power, then I could read. But nobody was interested in that because I'm just a patient in a hospital gown. And the fact that I was able to read at full speed didn't make any difference. A lot of people (laughs) with albinism Mm -hmm. and diabetic retinopathy and other serious problems, which can, these people can be corrected to allow them to read, but they have to demand the optical power. It's an more, po- more power to the people. Yeah, absolutely. And and what well, I wouldn't sp- have known that if I hadn't uh, had a career in optics mm-hmm. before I got into remote viewing. Well, and you know, and sometimes we find that one person's suffering is really the way we are given the gift of restoration in someone else. I mean, my own challenges of recovering from Crohn's disease when I was younger led to the founding of the Ruscom Mansion Community Health Center. And so interesting that your own lack has resulted in gifting to the world so much having to do with lasers and the whole optics of seeing. When when you look, though, at that, anic- that story you just shared, I mean, here you're a human who has obviously had an experience where you have overcome using the tools of humankind's invention so that you can see, and the medical community is not interested. They'll call it anecdotal. Your your own journey with illness and cancer and other things, I think, is also that story that so many of us share that doesn't exactly attract headlines in the medical community. No, what I'm doing now is it does not attract headlines, but I'm very happy having retired from Lockheed and finished up the ESP program at Stanford Research Institute in a certain sense, I'm back to doing magic because I'm teaching remote viewing all over the world and doing book signings. And generally, I will end a book signing or a um, workshop with what I think of as the object in the box trick, which is very much like what I used to do as a magician. But what I now do is to show up with some unusual, interesting object in a box or in a bag and my job is to invite the people in my audience to describe what I have with me. And they can describe the object I have through telepathy, which is a mind-to-mind connection with me, since I know the answer. Or they can describe it by direct connection with the object, which is clairvoyance or remote viewing. Or most likely, they can look into their own immediate future and use precognition to describe what they will be seeing at a later time. Now, of course, it's not a controlled experiment. It's not publishable. But it's surprising uh, the degree of success I have uh, with helping people get in touch with a part of themselves that's psychic. And that's really what motivates me now. I'm sort of a psychic Johnny Appleseed going around (laughs) showing... It's not like I'm teaching remote viewing. I'm giving people permission 
to make use of an ability they already have. Well, you know, it's an interesting way to describe because we've often seen spiritual teachers who, through the touch of the finger or the presence of their loving heart, seems to open that up in somebody. And sometimes if if a person such as yourself or any human really um, stands in the place that only they can occupy, it does turn on the circuitry of others. When when you get that sense that your presence, and they say in the Hasidic tradition, which I'm a student of, that our presence is what blesses a place, what feelings do you get when, when that sort of, when all things turn on? I mean, can you get an energetic feeling that you can oh, describe? Oh, yeah, that's very exciting. Uh, I recently gave a straight book talk, that is, where 45 minutes to come and say who I am and what I think I'm doing, and <laughs> sign some books at a metaphysical bookshop in San Francisco named Fields. The old bookstore, been there 75 years, Florida's high ceiling lined with books, a very warm-hearted group of about 40 people came to see me, and I didn't have any object with me. This was not a demonstration. This is uh, give a little talk and sign some books. But it was such a lovely, warm-hearted, energetic group of people. I said, let's pretend I have an object on this chair that I'm, I'm, I'm standing up. Next to this chair, let's pretend I have an object. I often have an object. Just visualize it here. I'll hold it in my attention, and I want you to quiet your mind and describe the object that I'm imagining on this chair next to me. The people did as well as any group that I ever worked with, and the fact that there was no physical object with no hindrance at all. It was just a pure mind-to-mind connection. My wife was with me, and she was shocked that I sort of went into my uh, magic trick where I had no object. Mm -hmm. And and it's really important to realize the, the lack of a physical object did not impede these people at all. They had very good experiences, made wonderful drawings, and then I had the owner of the shop go through her library and get me a picture of the thing that I was visualizing. Mm-hmm. As you say, the atmosphere does generate the ability. Well, and, and I think Lim McTaggart and so many of others have talked about, you know, in a modern way, a very ancient principle of why meditation um, becomes the wings of perception, because when you condition a field, it gets easier and easier to sort of sail along, to cruise the tide, so to speak. We're going to take a little break, but when I come back, one, one of the um, curious things that has always interested me, whether it was Ryan's work or your work or Ingo's description of suspending judgment, not classifying, not judging, just seeing, is the... The ability to change, I guess one would say, the um, the ripple of history uh, so that one can actually, with, with great loving intention, perhaps even change one's future or somebody else's. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. Dr. Russell Targ is with us. His most recent book, A Hampton Roads 2008 release, Do You See What I See? Memoirs of a Blind Biker. Visit Russell's website, www.espresearch.com. That's espresearch.com. Before the break, Russell, I, I brought up a question that interests me a great deal, and I think sometimes we don't spend a lot of time talking about it, which is you you mentioned that, you know, when we find that place of egolessness, when we are humble and nullify ourselves and, and reach that state of loving compassion, we obviously experience peace, which can be found within, not without, basically. 
when we look and you point out that one can look into the future to see where they'll be or what they'll be doing, and we can look into our past, how much does the loving heart have the ability to change, I guess this shorthand would be the karma of an act or, or just the ripple effect of it? Well, I think that we have psychic ability that appears often in our precognitive dreams. In fact, the first experience in ESP that a person often has is a precognitive dream where you dream in the evening about something that's going to happen the next day. And you can learn to separate out the precognitive dreams from your ordinary dream, which would be a wish fulfillment dream or an anxiety dream or a dream with the previous day's residue. For example, if I have a dream in which I'm failing an examination and I actually have not studied for the exam, that wouldn't be a precognition. That's what you would expect when you don't study for an exam. So that would best be an ordinary anxiety dream. But I... Pussy I heard that. Jumped up, jumped up on my desk and is sharing my cup <laughs> of water. Uh, but we had a contract monitor who had seen uh, so much psychic things in our laboratory that once when he was in Detroit, this is a rough, tough guy from the CIA. He was in Detroit. He had a frightening dream about being in an airplane crash where mm-hmm. he crashed in a ball of fire. Uh, so he decided not to fly the next day, but he didn't want to appear to be a sissy, so he didn't tell his partner he had a bad dream. Instead, he told his partner that something had come up and he was going to delay his flight, but I'll take you to the airport. So he drove his partner to the airport, the CIA colleague, and as our contract monitor was driving away, he had the experience of seeing the plane take off and crash in a ball of fire. Mm -hmm. So he was able to make use of uh, the information that came to him in the dream. Uh, You see, he had flown thousands and thousands of times, so this fellow had no fear of flying. But the dream was so frightening and horrific to him, and he had seen enough ESP in our laboratory, so he thought that why take any chances? He had a wife and a new daughter back in Washington. He thought he would just take another flight the next day. And I know a lot about this flight because in my following job, after I left Stanford, I went to work for Lockheed doing airplane safety, putting laser in airplanes to avoid wind shear crashes. And I got to study this particular flight. And this flight was karmically doomed. Mm Mm-hmm. In fact, I just learned uh, today that the flight in Spain where the airplane didn't get off the runway is because the person didn't set the ailerons. He took off without his flaps, which is why they crashed. Wow. And that's what happened to this one. In addition to being full of passengers, it was a very hot day, so you didn't have a lot of lift. They were moved from a longer runway to a shorter runway, and the pilot was trying to make a date with a stewardess Mm. for the so-called layover they were going to have in Las Vegas before the next flight. So he disabled the buzzer on the ailerons that says when they're not deployed, and there was wind shear at the end of the runway. 
So you had six vectors pointing toward the crash of this thing. So as Ingo would say, this crash was shining like a beacon in psychic space. Mm-hmm. It was a karmically determined to crash. And the contract monitor saw this, and he chose, based on the psychic experience of his dream, he chose not to fly in the airplane. So the answer is a long answer to your question. That is, when you learn to identify the dreams you have that are psychically derived, you can use them, incorporate them into your lives to avoid accidents. That is, the precognition you have shows us something impending, uh, but you can make use of that information to enrich your life. And it's interesting, you know, many people make a good deal of trying to see their past lives or get information from their past lives. And I have, of course, this interest in future lives. And um, we don't need to discuss it. But I but I have often thought if if there's this cyclicity of the soul, putting on a body and taking the body off and putting on the body and taking the body off, um, there are people and there are many stories who have conscious recall of the past life they knew the life they were coming to they made plans for the life they were coming to in in ways that they could authenticate it and in the same way your own interest and many others of the non-locality of consciousness that survives bodily death um, has some verifiable i guess one could say experiential anyway evidence share some of that with us well the evidence that something survives bodily death is becoming better and better of course, people have known about that and been interested in it for hundreds of years. The formation of the Society for Psychical Research in England was to examine uh, mediumistic claims of survival, where a medium would give a sitter information about a deceased person, which was often uh, quite verifiable. F.W. Myers published his famous book, Human Personality and the Survival of Bodily Death, which is hundreds of pages of his stories of mediums that he sat with. Most recently, two German psychologists did an experiment. It's always more interesting if a medium is able to show a ability rather than just information. For example, if you're going to a medium and she gives you information about some deceased person, who's known to you, that's very interesting, but it's really more interesting if the person can converse in Russian or Chinese language that they may not speak. So in this case, the psychologists who are chess players were looking for a medium who could find a deceased chess player, grandmaster, who would play with a living grandmaster. Mm-hmm. So you could have a post-mortem grandmaster-level chess game. And they found a deceased Hungarian named Geza Meritzi, who died in the 1950s. He had been second best in the world, and he was to play with Viktor Korchnoi, the living player who is second best in the world. And through this medium, who doesn't play chess, an elderly German man, uh, they played the deceased uh, Meritzi lasted 60 moves with Korchnoi a very strong player. In the end, the living player won, but I was able to send the chess score, the moves, uh, to my brother-in-law, Bobby Fischer, the world chess champion, living in Iceland. And Fischer could verify that this is indeed Grandmaster play, even though one of the people is dead. 
this is one of the stronger cases that I know, uh, giving very, very good evidence that some aspect of the personality does survive. And, and of course, in all the spiritual traditions, there's great reverence for the sages and that we stand on the shoulders of our ancestors. And there's this continuous linking up that's going on between the consciousness having a bodily experience and consciousness not having a bodily experience. When you when you look at the world and with your own practice in Buddhism, what do you see that Buddhism brings to the Westerner that perhaps the monotheistic traditions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam sometimes don't? It's an invitation to spaciousness, that there's no deity, but there is a universal consciousness in which you can participate. And it's the invitation to move. Um, first of all, it gives meaning to your life. That is, Buddhists are aware that there's a lot of suffering in the world, and what gives meaning to your life is to spend some fraction of your energy trying to alleviate, alleviate suffering, mm-hmm. to become aware of your own connection with a universal consciousness, and then to share that. That's one of the reasons that I run around encouraging people to get in touch with their non-local awareness. As in our program at Stanford, uh, we had really a two-pronged program. As part of it was trying to understand the nature of psychic functioning. How is it that we can quiet our minds, look into the distance, look into the future? And we shared that with our colleagues and wrote numerous scientific papers. On the other side, we supported ourselves by doing psychic spying for the CIA, which is not exactly a Buddhist activity. But during the Cold War, my colleague Hal Putoff and I felt that uh, we were basically in favor of intelligence rather than ignorance. I know a lot of people are in favor of ignorance, but during the Cold War, uh, we felt that we could actually provide information to the CIA that would be useful and that that information could be derived psychically. And the reward for that is that the CIA would support our program so that we could begin to understand uh, the physics and the psychology on behind psychic abilities. And we were able to describe uh, Soviet uh, missile, Soviet weapons factory where they were building a particle beam weapon to shoot down our satellites that were looking at the Soviets. And we did that in a contemporaneous way. Pat Price was able to describe the building and draw a picture of the crane and the facility And I show those drawings in my new book, Uh, Do You See What I See? Yeah, it's wonderful. And And subsequent to that, Ingo Swan was asked to describe something that would be happening three days in the future, and we were given the coordinates of a place in China, and Swan said, I see a beautiful pyrotechnic display. I have to get my colored pencils, red and green, blue and there are trucks in the background, and what he drew was this display that looked like the 4th of July. Now, the CIA people knew but didn't tell us that three days in the future the Chinese were supposed to do an atomic bomb test. But what Ingo Swan told them on Monday indicated that on Thursday they would do their bomb test and it would fail, because what Swan described is what happens when you burn uranium in air, 
rather than setting off an explosion. So this was a case where we were able to give them precognitive information that, of course, no one in the world knew about before it occurred. And we were involved in reporting on the health of the American hostages that were held by the Iranian students. And we found a downed Russian airplane with Soviet code books and code paraphernalia that was downed in Africa. And we did many operational things like that over 20 years. So on the one hand, psychic ability tends to be associated with a spiritual pursuit, discovering the nature of the self and expanding your own consciousness and diminishing your suffering. But on the other hand, uh, it is a perceptual ability, and I think it's a mistake to say that psychic abilities are sacred. I think psychic abilities are just abilities. For example, in the 80s, we were using ESP to forecast changes in the silver commodity market. And we were doing that with an enthusiastic investor. And over a period of nine weeks, we were forecasting whether silver would go up a little or up a lot, down a little or down a lot. And we were correct in each of our nine forecasts. And working with an experienced psychic, we made over $100,000 back when that was real money. And Nova made a film about us called The Case of ESP, and we're on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. So I'm uh, telling you about these various activities or exploits or uh, psychic perceptions to give you an idea that this is a strong ability. This is an ability that can really be used for things uh, more than just finding your car keys or uh, locating a parking place. What I think is the real application of psychic abilities is to discover who you are. And that, that was going to be my next question because it's, it's very clear from your path and, and in the many conversations I've had the pleasure of having with Bill Tiller that, that people who have been in the fields of science and at the same time their own development of, of self-management and self-nullification till, thank God, you, you arrive at beingness rather than being who you think you are, you write, be quiet and find out who you are. That's right. A lot of people spend their entire life defending the, sto- defending the story uh, that's written on their business card. Right. I am this, I am that, I've and, done this, I've done that. And that leads to a lot of suffering. Mm-hmm. When I was at Lockheed, for example, I, when I first came to Lockheed, I noticed in their weekly newspaper that after engineers would die, usually men, they... I, I misspoke. After they retire, they would die within a couple of years. So men retire from Lockheed at 65, and then they would tend to die at 67 or 68, which was very shocking for a 50-year-old engineer who just joined the company. That looked like I didn't want to have that outcome. And I spoke to people at Boeing and Bell Telephone Laboratories, and indeed... Senior scientists, after they've been with the company for many, many years, they begin to think that who they are is a Lockheed engineer or a Boeing engineer, and then when they retire, they're suddenly nothing, and then they get all they get heart attacks or multiple sclerosis or all sorts of 
odd diseases, uh, which is as though it's as though the self was sucked out of them. Mm-hmm. This, their be- they lose their business card and their security clearance is taken away from them. They're just sent home. There's nothing nothing in their in basket. Just sent home to annoy their wives for the rest of their life. <laughs> well, and our our culture does make so much of what you do rather than who you are and how you do what you do. I mean, I have always found that very interesting. That yeah, it's... Arthur Miller talked about the death of his wife Marilyn Monroe, and he said the tragic in her life, what was lethal for her, is that there was no separation between my wife and the girl in the film. Mm-hmm as she began to think that who she was was the girl of the movie poster and that was and that's lethal and that's help happened to Elvis Presley and Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison and uh, a lot of super popular Jimi Hendrix a lot of people <laughs> just think, think of all of them from the 70s and 80s who became superstars and then they killed themselves but what what's the what's wrong with this picture? What's the picture is that they begin to believe that who they are is a story rather than who they are is this non local awareness that has nothing at all to do with the body or very little. The, what? the teach what what you catch out it's as though <clears throat> see I sat in the dark for a decade teaching people how to do remote viewing. I'm one of the rare people who had their spiritual development paid for by the CIA. <laughs> it's actually probably appropriate, given you gave them what you gave them. Sounds like a fair trade to me. So I, so I sat in the dark helping people. I was functioning as a kind of psychic travel agent. That I would help people describe an experience where somebody else was hiding, mm-hmm. either in the San Francisco Bay Area or in Russia or in China wherever they were, and what became clear to me over this time is that we could not possibly be just a physical body. That would be a silly idea because our awareness is completely independent of the physical body. Our awareness is able to experience things that are happening distance in time and distance in space. The body is just sitting in a chair in a darkened room so your awareness really transcends space and time. And the fact that your awareness is timeless means that you're timeless. So it leads to a lot of suffering if you think that who you are is what you see in the mirror in the morning. That, that would not be a good belief system. No, you know, it's interesting. In in the Hasidic tradition, they say that our, our thought speech and action are the garments of the soul in the world to come, meaning when you're not in the manifest world. And and so when one thinks about, you know, how significant that is, that we are creators. You know, that is the the, the garments of the soul is a, is a good model. It's as though uh, we reside as a physical body, but it's a mistake to think that that's who you are. Exactly. I was even when I was studying prophecy of the Israelite prophetesses, all seven of them, and and came to this awareness that the body ultimately is designed to be eternal, like the soul. And and I think that's what's meant by resurrection when we finally get to the point that we are not our body, 
and then the body has the capacity to be eternal. It's kind of a strange little paradox. But anyway, we have to take a little break, Russell. When we come back, a few more questions for you. Thank you so much for being with us. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. Russell Targ is with us. His most recent book, I encourage you to read a wonderful exploration, opens your heart, lets you see what he sees. But do you see what I see as its title, Memoirs of a Blind Biker? It's a Hampton Roads 2008 release. Go to www.espresearch.com. So, Russell, not trying to make a total fool of myself, when you said you brought, you know, a, a non-object before that audience, I was sitting here going, yeah, it was the Eiffel Tower with a merry-go-round in front of it. And I'm going, sure, that's what he brought to that group. When when you do that kind of exercise you had described for us earlier of, of presenting an object in your mind before others, and they were to divine what it is. Um, talk to us a little bit about the fact that time does not seem to be um, a, a factor, per se, in consciousness. Well, the idea of non-locality was first discovered uh, by Schrodinger in the 1920s and then written about by Einstein in the 30s. And Einstein was concerned with a what he called a spooky connection at, at a distance. That is, Einstein was troubled by the fact that quantum mechanics predicted that things separated from one another uh, were connected nonetheless. Right. And then in the 1970s, this was demonstrated to be correct. So the idea of non-local connection, namely the connection of certain things that are separated by very long distance, are still physically connected. So that if you generate photons in Zurich and send one beam to Basel and the other to Geneva, you can grab the photons in Basel and notice that something happened in Geneva many kilometers away. Uh, Henry Stapp, who's the chairman of the physics department at University of California, Berkeley, says that the discovery of non-locality may be the most important discovery in all of science because it says that uh, separation is an illusion. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you've heard that because the Buddhists have been saying separation is an illusion for 2,500 years. So this is not a, not a new idea. Another example of something that's not a new idea is that in the 1970s, Ingo Swan and Hal Putoff and I started working with remote viewing. And Ingo taught Hal and me how to do remote viewing. And then Hal and I taught half a dozen other people working for Army Intelligence at Fort Meade, including Joe McMonagall. And the Army program, the Army Intelligence people, then taught the world. So if you go to Google right now Mm -hmm. and search on remote viewing in quotation marks, you'll find more than a million pages devoted to remote viewing. So this is no longer hidden or esoteric or uh, secret, it's now quite available. And what happens is that remote viewing is quite easy to do so that people take a class in remote viewing and learn how to do it. They incorporate it in their lives, and they immediately want to start teaching it. So that's how you happen to have a million sites dealing with remote viewing, whereas a few years ago there were none. It was really an explosion of something that used to be 
uh, quite esoteric. And and I think as Ingo rightly calls these biomind superpowers, that when our culture finally breaks the bank, so to speak, or the bank breaks and then people wake up, it might be the reverse through, um, unfortunately, that holding on to something that may not be there to hold on to, that, that people start discovering it. I mean, we see compassion often after great tragedy. We see people opening yeah, their heart other up. other books that he didn't, he talked about penetration but the other popular book is called Psychic Sexuality, yes, uh-huh. which deals with the idea that remote viewing is part of a continuum where the remote viewing we did in our laboratory at SRI was very quiet and peaceful, where I tell you I'm holding an object in my hand. Can you quiet your mind and describe what you see on your mental screen and incidentally, your visualization of the merry-go-round was very close to what I had. So that, that would be a very, very good description. I would tell you, don't call it a merry-go-round. Just draw what you're seeing. Right. And you'd probably be very close to what I actually had in the bookshop. Oh, interesting. But people can move from... The, it's very important not to name it. Right. The, the thinking is the worst thing you can do. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. You want to just ex- describe and experience the images that come into your awareness. But to the continuum from this very peaceful remote viewing where you're describing images to what Ingo talks about where you can have an out-of-body experience, which is the other end of the remote viewing continuum where you can bring with you emotionality or sensitivity or sexuality and have quite an engaging experience with a person you're visiting at a distant result, different site. In fact, uh, Bob Monroe, who wrote the book Journeys Out of the Body, met his wife or interacted with his future wife through an out-of-body experience leading to their getting married. Yeah, we, we spoke about that when he joined us. When when you look at all of this, I mean, we're almost out of time, and I want to be sure for you to sort of put this in perspective for the world and the challenges we face, and, and, and really, to me, it's about bringing the head and the heart together. Share with us your own journey of the heart. Well, what I've learned is that uh, you can move from this conditioned awareness where you are forced to believe what the society tells you to the spaciousness through a path of mindfulness and emptiness where mindfulness leads you to understand that you can experience transcendent knowing, which is the kind of remote viewing inflowing of information, transcendent doing, where you outflow your healing intentionality and you can um, help relieve the suffering of distant people. And, par- and part of uh, inflowing would be remote viewing and intuitive diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And you can have the outflowing, which is your distant healing. And then there's uh, transcendent being, which is the opportunity to reside in this quiet, spacious place and take a perspective uh, really out of space and out of time to gather your thoughts together and notice um, that although things are happening in the world, we really give all the meaning there is to what we experience. It's the Buddhist idea of emptiness, that things are happening, but they're not necessarily happening to you. 
So it creates a lot of suffering to personalize everything that's happening. So the idea of emptiness is a very important idea. The Buddhists do not teach that the world is empty of stuff. They say that it's empty of meaning, and then you assign that meaning, and you can live in a peaceful life, or you can live in a life that's filled with uh, suffering and craving, and you get to choose. And the remote viewing is not a spiritual path, but remote viewing gives you the indication that this spacious realm is available to you, and you can incorporate that into your life. And and I think for those of us and yourself, I know for my own self, after being in, in the world for so long, covering foreign affairs and the darkness of human behavior, and then having this cosmic experience of divine love, it so profoundly changed me. It was like the Brit of the heart that I, I have a peace that I never found in all those wild years of looking for the spiritual way. And and so it interests me that people all over the world are beginning to find that place of peace within. Do you think that a community of global humans tapped into the heart of consciousness is able to hold things together while others kind of spin out of control? I think community is extremely important to, that you can find a safe place to practice whatever uh, ritual or discipline you have. Now, the, the Buddhas talk about three jewels in Buddhism. There's the Buddha, who is a teacher, the Dharma, which is a teaching, and the Sangha, which is a spiritual community. And of the three, the Sangha is the most important. Because having a spiritual community is extremely important to have a safe place to quiet your mind and to participate in the spirit, in the spaciousness. And an investment club will not do for a spiritual community. <laughs> you, you, well, let you me encourage my audience. You don't have to go to church, but you do need a safe place to get together with like-minded people who support your practice, whatever it is. Well, let me encourage everybody to follow up with you, and thank you so much, Russell, for joining us and sharing your journey and your love of it all with us. Go to www.espresearch.com. That's espresearch.com. Russell Targ's book, Do You See What I See? A Hampton Roads 2008 release. Go to Russell's website, www.espresearch.com.